I like the idea of Jeff from Los Angeles being like first time, long time, you know, yeah, just yeah. calling into the show. <laughs> I just to introduce myself. You didn't have to. You just jumped in before I could. All right. Hey there. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is August 4th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hey, Sarah. I'm just here waiting for the hurricane. Or is it a tornado now? I I don't really know. I can't keep up. I know. I'm really hoping for loud claps of thunder during the recording. I would would enjoy that. I'm sure listeners would enjoy that. It's dramatic. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's really not a tornado. No, we're in a tornado watch. What? Yeah. Yeah. We were in a hurricane warning yesterday or overnight, and then... I don't really know if that panned out. I I need to go back and read more about tornadoes because that wasn't <laughs> my understanding of how that worked. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, I'm not leaving the Midwest for New York and getting in a tornado here. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> That's not happening. Is it um, a hurricane <laughs> causing a tornado to happen? I assume. Yeah, I think wow, so. That's... We're not exactly in Tornado Alley out here. <laughs> All right. All right. I didn't mean to interrupt. Hi, I'm Jeff okay. from, the, from Los Angeles. Hey, it's Jeff from Los Angeles. <laughs> uh, how's it going, Jeff from Los Angeles? It's good. It's, um, you know, there's there's a cloud in the sky, but other than oh, that, no. um, the Are weather's okay? okay. Oh, wow. I hope you recover. So did you guys hear that The Rock is buying an ownership stake in the XFL? So The Rock, I guess, is going to save football for us when the NFL can't happen? Yeah, I I assume they'll just uh, put it in a bubble. Uh, Really, I mean, we know that non-NFL pro football leagues are generally doomed. Mm -hmm. So why not start one in the middle of a pandemic? See what happens. This is kind of an issue. This has been going on for a while where it's just the the problem is that because of this old money, I mean, granted, the bills happened. um, There's not a lot of teams to buy. Remember when John Bon Jovi was just trying to buy any football team for like a decade? He would have just... He had an arena league team. He would have bought anything. So I think, you know, a lot of these guys want to own football teams, but, you know, you can't just go out and buy the Bengals. Or can you? I don't know. Maybe you can (laughs) if you're the Rock. Yeah, if you're the Rock, you can do anything, I think. Anyway, on today's show, we'll talk about the latest developments in college football, how the list of demands by a group of Pac-12 players might affect the sport's return, as well as whether the coronavirus might be the catalyst for the Power Five to break away from the NCAA. We'll also look at all the sports that have returned with the NBA, WNBA, MLB, and NHL all back in action. We'll talk about what's happened so far in each of the leagues and what we're looking forward to in this amazing sports-filled world we're suddenly, perhaps briefly, living in. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Over the weekend, a group of Pac-12 players penned an op-ed in the Players' Tribune threatening to boycott fall training and games this season if the conference doesn't meet a list of demands on player safety, racial justice, and economic rights. The letter has reopened, if the conversation was ever closed, discussions about the economic exploitation of student-athletes and the general concern over bringing college athletes back to campus under very decentralized, unevenly enforced health and safety guidelines. This list of demands came around the time of reports from the SEC that players were told by medical advisors that positive COVID-19 cases on their teams were a given. It also comes right before an NCAA Board of Governors meeting happening later today, where they are set to discuss the status of 2020 fall championships. So the timing is perfect and everything's fine. Some college leagues have already made the decision to cancel fall sports. On USA Today's Sports Pulse, Christine Brennan argued that could create a domino effect. As the Ivy League goes, so goes the nation. Well, it happened in March, certainly during the pandemic, when the Ivy League decided to cancel the men's and women's basketball tournament. And then several days later, the NCAA followed suit, canceling both the men's and women's basketball tournaments. Happened also with spring sports. The Ivy League said they weren't going to play spring sports. And within a few days, 
the nation was also saying no spring sports. So the question is, will it happen again? The Ivy League with the big announcement, no fall sports, football or anything else, obviously heartbreaking for all of those student athletes. The Ivy League is very concerned about the safety, the well-being and the health of not only its student athletes, its coaches, its staff, trainers, everyone involved with, uh, with this sports program in the fall. Question is, what will happen with our other schools and other big leagues. Uh, the Power Five, obviously, they're not going to do this right away, but they're going to watch the Ivy League closely and especially watch the presidents of all of these universities. They trace their roots back to the Ivy League. Some went to the Ivy League. They revere those Ivy League schools and the decisions they make. And those presidents could have a big role to play with their athletic directors and their coaches as schools around the country start to evaluate if it's safe enough to play sports in the fall. So to start here, it's worth pointing out that the Ivy League is generally less financially dependent on the money they would make playing sports. Obviously, they don't award athletic scholarships. They make little in TV revenue anyway. And of course, the schools themselves are, you know, pretty well endowed. They uh, they don't need <laughs> football money. But this idea that the rest of college football will follow the Ivy League's lead again is interesting. Jeff, do you think the Power Five will do as the Ivies and shut it all down? Or will they find a way to play through? Um, I mean, right now, and I, I, look, I've been saying from day one, I don't think college football is going to happen. So yes, is the answer. <laughs> I do not think it will necessarily be because of the Ivy League, though. I think that is pretty apples to oranges. I mean, the Patriot League shut down after the Ivy League. So that is a, it did cause a smaller domino effect. But I do think that from an economic standpoint, the Power Five is just a completely different situation. You know, if one Power Five league goes, decides to, it's not worth it, or has too much, um, you know, positive tests or outbreaks. That, I mean, look what's happening at Rutgers right now. I mean, the the number of positive tests doubled, and that's a that's a Big Ten school. So I, I do think once one one of the power five goes it, it wouldn't surprise me if they all went because I, I don't really think it's possible i mean i think it's hard enough to play you know just amongst your conference and then still figure out some sort of playoff um but to not have one of the conferences full stop i, I think it's kind of all or nothing yeah and as you pointed to sarah the ivies are sort of indicative of what like a purely uh, non-economic uh, view or version of what college football would be looking at um, and making their decision would look like. Uh, and so it's sort of like on the basis of everything except, you know, huge television contracts and these elite players um, that are that are the best recruits and, you know, the machine of college football at its apex. Yeah, they shouldn't be playing a season. I think the big question is, and this is exposing the the fact that what happens when the the underlying academic nature of college football, which is represented by not just the Ivies, but Division two and Division three, and really everyone outside of the Power Five to uh, a large extent, what happens when they are at odds with the Power Five and the Alabamas and Clemsons and so forth of the world? Uh, who gets to make the decision about who plays and who do they play? And, you know, do they just kind of create their own little closed ecosystem, which they're already kind of doing when it comes to scheduling conference only um, games? And that's what we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, but does this pave the way for almost something that's been brewing for a long time, which is the Power Five being a, a, a conference or a league uh, set off unto themselves apart from the rest of college football, because the coronavirus is kind of exposing that uh, what the definition of college football is for the power five is very different than the definition of what college football is for everyone else in college football. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think when we think about college football, we think about the power five. That's the like the image people have, but that's not the only kind of football there is. And, and, you know, obviously different schools have different, um, different opinions about, about how this should work and different like stakes in the outcomes. Um, so there are reports that the power five could break away and hold its own fall championships without the blessing of the NCAA. If the NCAA does go ahead and cancel those fall championships. Now these are, these are the sports other than football. The NCAA doesn't run the championship for football because it's a totally weird, weird thing. 
which yeah. is already weird. I mean, and speaks to the fractured nature of football specifically yeah. being almost different from other sports. But then these you know, the power five is synonymous with college football and with certainly the college football playoff. I don't think any school from outside the power five has ever made the college football playoff. I mean, it, but see, it's a divide, but it's also not a divide. Because power five conferences lose to group of five teams all the time, every season. And it, yeah, but the group not, of five that, teams, they, they pay the group of five teams right. for the right to beat them most of the time. And if they win, it's some kind of happy accident. But I mean, that's how messed up the, the economics of college football is, is that even when they, you know, get a chance to play these schools and they're always on the road, uh, you know, the, the non power five teams uh, when they win, it's just sort of gravy on top of the fact that they're dependent on these payments from the power five schools to be able to meet their budgets each year but uh, i guess what i'm saying is like you know especially you know mountain west schools even some max schools they're they're very competitive with the lower rungs of the power five i mean tcu wasn't a power five school they went to the big 12 and all of a sudden you know they're in the big 12 championship at, at not that many years later um there there are boise state you know comes to mind obviously you know they, they'll be favored against a lot of power five schools i guess what i'm saying is obviously you get to the depths of the sun belt and and you know the Georgia Southerns, no offense to Georgia Southern, good program. Um, <laughs> it's a little different, but I'm saying that it isn't a huge drop off, obviously. It, you know, it, that doesn't mean I think UCF deserves to be in the playoff or anything like that, but it, they are competitive college football programs. But I think the, the difference is they're not necessarily competitive economically, right? Oh, yes. I mean, the, the resources in the That's group of five. True. And the other the other schools just don't they don't just don't have the resources of the power five. And TCU is a great example because it is an example of a team that almost outgrew, you know, they got so good. And, uh, you know, you kind of wonder whether that will happen for the Boise's or some of these other schools that have almost Mm -hmm. gotten too good for their group of five conferences. They all want to be in power five conferences so it's sort of like if if you can beat them then you join them you know so <laughs> all ro- i guess my point is that all roads in big time college football lead to the power five and especially the the cream of that crop uh and yet it represents a very small share of all college football teams but they're exerting all of this pressure to to play that i think other schools just you know uh, that are thinking about it from a you know, student health perspective don't want to do. Well, so would it make more sense for the group, for the Power Five to break away? I mean, is that, would that actually be better for college football? I mean, we'd leave then, we'd have the Power Five where the, you know, where the money is and the, the like attention is doing whatever they do. And then schools that have football as a sport, but not, the most important thing at their school. I mean, is would that be better? This is why I always kind of jokingly lobbied for college football to develop a uh, English soccer style relegation system because it would actually work. You know, we're talking about the elite of the group of five. They can compete with the bottom or or in some cases like TCU, the, the bottom of, of the power five. And it would give the group of five things to play for a chance to uh, whatever. It's a hypothetical thing that will never happen. But does uh, Vanderbilt get relegated? So yeah, I have, <laughs> I mean, I, have that, I, would, I love this idea. <laughs> I love that idea. As does, um, uh, yeah, as does Rutgers. Um, <laughs> but I think in some ways, sir, they already kind of are, that you know and besides for you know filling out the schedule they're not really taking the the group of five seriously in terms of the playoff or anything like that i mean this is part of the reason you know we wanted to see an expanded playoff was to get at least one of those schools in just to see what would happen um and i am one of the people who who always thought you know ucf even if they went undefeated or whatever didn't deserve to be there because i just i just don't think you know, that's relevant compared to the the schedules yeah. other teams are playing. But um, yes, to answer your question, I think they are going in that direction. But I think the interesting thing with everything that's happening, you know, in the current link pandemic is, you know, can any of these bells, if we decide to ring them, be unrung? You know, like, the, let's talk about the universal DH. Uh, 
in the National League. Do you really think we're going to go back to pitchers batting after this? I mean, I hope not. Just using that as an example, a small example. I don't think so. Yeah. I think, I, I think it's it's done, you know? Although, on the other hand, I think baseball won't have 16-team playoffs in the future. I think they might have an expanded playoff. I don't think they it'll might. be. I think it'll be. I think they'll have an expanded playoff, but I don't think it'll be sixteen teams. This is nuts. It's more than half the league. That's crazy. Um, I, I feel like people think it's like okay, that's a, an okay thing for this year, but aren't going to allow that. But the universal DH, nobody's even saying. Not after this year, you know. People are just like whatever. But I mean, that's a great point about what can creep in. You know that that gets. Um you know, implemented during a strange pandemic season, if it even happens in the case of college football. Um, But I think that this is showing that I think the power five have kind of been at odds with the NCAA, especially in terms of football for a long time. Uh, And the power five would probably, I mean, they wouldn't be happy about it, but they would be more inclined to adopt some of the things that uh, the PAC 12 players asked for in that letter which were paying the players. I mean, outside of the power five, certainly outside of the group of five, football is not a huge moneymaker necessarily. Um, and uh, the, the idea of having to, to kind of pay people to do it might be a total non-starter, but how do you deal with the cognitive dissonance of having some teams that are all amateur teams play against teams that are paying the players? It, it's interesting because I, I think you're totally right. It's too big. There's too many different athletic departments with hugely varying degrees of money. And and frankly, you know, they do have leverage at this moment. And it shows that, you know, not having a union, not having a union at all for these college football players, I'm dubious that they could ever, you know, really capitalize on that leverage in in this moment. And it does seem like, you know, these are the you look back on history, this is when change often happens. Um, you know, it takes like a big event to get change and to capitalize on that. But to, for them to not have any organization, you know, I, I think, you know, even some of the guys in that Pac-12 group, you know, they're significant players. You know, there's a, you know, Holland on Oregon, the safety is a first round pick, but there's only so much they can do, especially with this fractured state of 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 college football as it is right now where, you know, the NCAA is basically leaving it up all to all the conferences and there is no real governing body that's, you know, looking over the sport and there's certainly no one looking over the players. So, you know, I I doubt anything will come of it, but. Well, I, I think though you're, I think you are right though, that like in these moments where there is, um, this like, you know, crack in, a huge crack in the structure is where change can happen. And, you know, if, if the power five really, really is determined to play football this, this fall, they're going to have to meet the players at some point, because I mean, the players do have that power anyway, they can say, we're not going to play. And, and that's, I mean, that might be the only power they have, but that is a huge, a huge point of leverage. um, If those, if those schools are so determined to play. So, I mean, the, you know, the demand, some of their demands, the equal, the, the pay demands right now are still a little bit far away. I think, um, I mean, one of their demands was to distribute 50% of each school's total conference revenue evenly among athletes in their respective sports. That does not seem like that is going to happen anytime no. soon, no matter like, no matter who's in charge, whether it's the NCAA or those conferences or what that one is, is probably a non-starter, but I mean, it's a point to negotiate from, right? But these are all things that the NCAA ha- you know, should have been, making headway toward and and kind of trying to figure out the logistics of for a long time. And instead, they kind of put their head in the ground and pretended that the problem of amateurism in a sport that increasingly is not, you know, it's making money for everyone except the players and making astronomical amounts of money ever increasing since, you know, the 70s and 80s. Um, they, they kind of acted like they never were going to have to deal with that and just pretended that it wasn't a problem. And now they're sort of decades behind on um, taking any kind of action or forming any kind of plan around that. And I think the pandemic is catching them especially flat footed because it is like you said, Sarah, it's a, you know, big change is much more likely to happen in moments of crisis than in normal, everything's fine status quo 
moments because it's a lot easier for everyone to kind of go along with the flow. I mean, we're seeing in baseball, it's a 30 team league with 30 man rosters and they seem to have no idea. Like once once it hit them, it's like that Mike Tyson quote where everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. The <laughs> baseball, they thought they had a plan and then more than half the Marlins tested positive and they've been in a crisis, I feel like, ever since. Uh, what is that? I mean, college football yeah, can multiply that's that. It. That's all you need to say. I mean, that's why this is not happening. I mean, because you, you're like, okay, let's take baseball. Let's triple the number of teams. Let's double the number of players on all those teams. Let's make sure all those players have no money and no means to, you know, in, uh, secure themselves. Let's also make them all younger and probably more likely to socialize and go around and not social distance. But less likely to die. Should put yeah, that out. It, it, it's just probably we you're think. gonna see if they were to do college football, you would see these outbreaks up and down every every level, whether it's group of five, power five, anything like that. I mean, I don't think just because the power five, you know, may have more money, that they're not gonna insulate themselves from this problem. Right. They haven't um, yet anyway, if that's baseball sure. can't do it. Yeah. We've had two teams already with an outbreak. We've, there's already reports of outbreaks in, on, on different college teams already, and, and nothing's even really happened yet. And I, I, think to, I think to what we were talking about earlier, the Power Five, you know, the prospect of them breaking off from the NCAA, in some ways that would make this better and easier because presumably that Power Five block of schools would have its own commissioner and it would be more professionalized and it would have more you know, centralized control and power to set guidelines that, that fit, you know, across teams uh, instead of this sort of hodgepodge of 120 different sets of rules that, that the teams are playing by. Uh, And the NCAA, I think has been hesitant to do that for the same reason that they're hesitant to even, you know, manage the college football playoff is because they don't want any kind of sniff of uh, the appearance that it's a professional league and that it's not just a group right. of colleges where the athletes just happen to go there. <laughs> they are not there to play their sport. They're just student athletes that happen to be really good at football. And they formed this team randomly together uh, under the leadership of, you know, Debo Sweeney. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're just a bunch of guys who are Clemson students that happen to be good at football and they're not professionals and they're just amateurs playing for the love of the game. I mean, that facade is just totally at odds with this idea that like, yeah, it's a professionalized operation and we have leadership and we have protocols in place. And, you know, we're going to pay these guys for the risk that they're taking on. I had missed a, ne- a good Neil college football rant. It's been a little no, while. <laughs> no, you're 100% right. And they've never cared about the player's health. I mean, that's a joke. Oh, yeah. I mean, concussions and everything. I mean, they barely take seriously guys dropping dead on the field from heat exhaustion after being worked too hard in 95 degree days. I mean, they, they've never taken player safety seriously. The NFL barely cares about that. Well, right. And yeah. they're a professional league. But I do. I mean, I think, I think there's a good, it's a good point that the power five could, if they broke away, they would, they would at least have all aligned interests among football teams. Um, whereas we don't really have that among the the smaller schools, but I don't really think that even that that would help with player safety because those guys also don't care, but it's not like the conference. I mean, I don't think the big 12 conference has done a ton to like protect their players differently than the NCAA, but there are labor laws. I mean, I think when you get into this, uh, where you're actually paying the players and they're considered employees of the university, at least you have more protections against yeah. workplace, you know, safety violations. And also you're able to unionize, you know, and actually kind of organize more effectively. So, you know, I think the, the best thing for college football going forward is to pay the players and come up with a system for that as quickly as possible. And I don't know if the, the virus, you know, expedites that, but this has been a long time coming and it seems like now more than ever is the moment where they finally do that for the long term, not just the short term future of the sport, which is, you know, it's going to be a rough year for them. And we've also seen, you know, schools talk about the prospect of like taking out loans, you know, to be able to kind of fund the the athletic program for the year if they can't have fans and if they can't, you know, uh, play a full schedule. So it's going to be a tough 
time no matter what. But I think that also, you know, looking to the long term future of college football, the future is in paying the players. There's no future in this amateur model. And there hasn't been for a long time, but now it is clearer than ever, I think. I think that's I think that's a great point, Neil. Um, You know, this this year will be hard, but there are opportunities for real change here for for the good of the sport. Um, I think we can we can end here um, for now on this discussion, but uh, I'm sure we'll be back later as we find out what more college football is actually going to do about this season. Let's take a quick break. Regardless of whether college football happens, lots of other sports are happening right now. All of a sudden, we have men's and women's basketball, baseball for the moment, and hockey all going on at once, plus soccer in the form of the MLS and the Champions League. After being without live sports for so long, it's, I think, a little overwhelming right now to have, well, kind of everything happening. It's great. I I love it. Neil's a big fan. I'm just like, too many sports to watch. Um, But we wanted to talk about all those sports, kind of open a grab bag and and talk about our impressions of this mega sports weekend we just had and what we're excited about going forward. So we'll start with the NBA, which had a very exciting opening weekend and already has ESPN's Jay Williams revising who he might pick to win the title. Regardless of them losing the finals MVP, the Toronto Raptors can win the world championship. And I'm, I'm the quickest one to talk about the evolution of my process of thinking. At the beginning of the year, Greeny, I was like, I don't know about these Raptors. I'm not sure that they're going to be the team that we thought they were going to be. Losing Kawhi Leonard really hurts them. Losing Danny Green to the Lakers really hurts them. And then I started watching tape. I started paying attention to what Nick Nurse was talking about. And they are one of the most brilliant teams to watch play. They execute. They are one of the top teams, the top team in the league as far as ISO defense. Their defense ranks number two defensive efficiency. And Pascal Siakam has arrived. I'm not sure he can get it all the way, but like Perk said, he's in that top tier and they have a chance to really win the whole thing with their defense. And it's special to watch. Toronto upset LeBron and the Lakers on Saturday night. And they won again last night against a very good Miami Heat team. So, Neil, can the Raptors win it all now? Oh, yeah, that's totally changed my opinion of them. No, I mean, I'm kind of, uh, as I was watching that, I was thinking to myself, are we underrating the defending champs? Can they actually do this? I mean, it's it's undeniably been an impressive restart for them. Our model still only gives them a 2% chance. I'm saying there's a chance, but only 2%. <laughs> but that might be underselling them, to be honest. I, I would probably take the over on that, uh, if only slightly, just because, you know, and you don't want to read too much into just a few games in a very weird situation. Yeah. But uh, I think that, you know, we've talked about championship experience as it sort of relates to a team having almost like an, a, a disproportionate boost to how they do in in future postseasons. And this team has a lot of championship experience. But also, but also, you know, what if Nick Nurse is just a very good coach? I think that's right. Like, also, and and it's like a Popovich situation. Whereas you know the Spurs would change personnel. I mean, obviously they they had a couple pieces that were always there, but you never kind of counted them out because of you. You knew they had this this you know, and, and not unlike the Patriots because of the the advantage they had on the coaching side. I, I don't know if Nick Nurse is that coach, but it, I'm saying it is possible. We have seen that before in other sports. We've seen that before in basketball. The other interesting thing about the Raptors is before play was suspended, they had not had their entire like starting unit healthy. That's right. Basically all season. So we're finally seeing the whole team, which is also like, you know, they're pretty good together. And it's not surprising that we didn't necessarily know that before they were still winning games. They were still a good team, but we didn't really get to see them at their full potential. So what else intrigued you guys during the first few games back for the NBA? Well, I've also been, you know, in addition to being impressed by the Raptors, I've been impressed by the Rockets. I think that um, they were one of the teams that had some of the most questions to answer. I think Philly is still the team that has the most questions to answer and they still haven't answered them and continue to persist in not answering them. But um, (laughs) the Rockets were another team where it's like, okay, well, how are they going to look? How are they going to come out of the break? But also they, they had a tough schedule, you know, uh, starting things out and they staged a great comeback against Dallas. 
And then they got a win over the Bucks, who have been the best team in the league statistically this season. And Harden is coming in playing great uh, right out of the gate. And so, yeah, I think that they have maybe upgraded themselves from being a team that's like, uh, I'm kind of shaky on them to like, hey, you know, let's see what they've got. I saw in those two games, the Rockets had 109 three-point attempts and gave up 104 points in the paint. <laughs> like, I like, I, I enjoy the commitment to the brand. Like, they're going to do what they're going to do, and they're going to do it well. And I love that. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they are like the ultimate basketball laboratory right now, <laughs> I think. And they have been for years. But I, I like the the idea of like, just you know, you believe in your system and you're going to double down and triple down on it and just try, you know, try to win your way. Because if it does happen, I mean, you know, Daryl Morey, it, it will be a legend for for just, you know, assembling yeah. this team. And obviously, Mike Tony and James Harden get a little, sure. <laughs> little credit in there, too. But I, I do think that uh, just if they are able to win and, and kind of validate their their brand of basketball, I think that would be a amazing story to me the most interesting thing is the western playoffs and how i've spent most of my time just trying to figure out how it works in terms <laughs> of who gets in um it does seem kind of ridiculous because it's very clear at this point that the nba just wants the pelicans in so <laughs> yeah. can't they kind of just overrule and just insert them or change the like, rules guys, on the fly yeah. sort of like baseball does you know, when they decide to expand the playoffs, you know, when games are about to start. Um, <laughs> so there's precedent for that now in COVID. You know, yeah. can't they be like nine teams? Oh, wait a minute. We changed our tiebreakers. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'm on board. I want more Pelicans. I want more Zion who, who lost another shoe. Yeah, but it didn't explode. That's crucial when he loses a shoe. <laughs> right. It didn't explode. He doesn't have it, so we have that. Yeah, well, let's move on to the WNBA. Um, all the teams in the Wubble have four games under their belts now. Um, and fans are watching. Opening day ratings were 20% higher than last year's. So, hey, look, you put WNBA games on TV and people will watch. Who knew? Uh, we did lose rookie Sabrina Ionescu to a grade three ankle sprain, which uh, was a huge bummer, obviously, for the Liberty and, and for Sabrina and for us. But there are many other interesting storylines to follow out of the league. Um, here's what caught my eye. Sylvia Fowles of the Minnesota Lynx broke the league's all-time rebounding record last week. She has an unbelievable 3,381 <laughs> boards to her name. That's just a lot of rebounds. Uh, she's also leading the league in rebounds per game this season with 12.3 because why not? Uh, the depleted Connecticut Sun, last year's runners-up, started the season 0-4, but forward Dewana Bonner has been on fire. She's leading the league with 27.5 points per game. And the team they lost to, the defending champion Washington Mystics, are off to a three-to-one start despite all the star power they're missing with no Alina Deladon, no Tina Charles, who just joined the team, no Natasha Cloud. Um, Ariel Atkins has been hitting everything from downtown. Emma Miesemann has picked up from where she left off in last year's finals. And Maisha Hines-Allen is having a breakout season for the Mystics. So there is a lot of fun basketball going on in the WNBA too. And there are games like all the time. They had an off night last night and I was like, oh, I can catch my breath. That's actually sort of nice. That's how, that's what a change I'm in right now. A month ago, I would have done anything for some live sports. And now I'm like, can I have a night off? <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> I'm shocked that you've gotten to that point so quickly. <laughs> no, it happened very fast. <laughs> we haven't even talked about the PGA Championship. We got a major this week. Yeah, we do have a major this week. Uh, what about baseball? Despite the fact that both the Marlins and now the Cardinals seem to set to lose half their bench to COVID-19. Games are still going. The Reds don't seem as hot as we thought they might be, but Aaron Judge does seem terrifyingly good, so that's fun. Jeff, what has interested you most about the season now that we're about 10 games in? Um, and that's not related to uh, Cespedes um, just <laughs> disappearing. There was a that few hours there. The best there were a few hours there where Johannes Cespedes was missing. Um, <laughs> Did that surprise so. anyone? 
No, it surprised. It didn't surprise me at all. Yeah. A because it was Cespedes. B because what? Look, I mean, nothing surprises me now. I was like, oh, Cespedes missing. Better keep tabs on that. And then he's gone. So <laughs> the no, I think it's been an interesting uh, season. It, it, it was in, it was you know that first couple that first couple games. You know, it was like there were stories going out how no one's three and zero, and maybe there will be the, all this crazy parody. But now it does seem like there are some clear teams pulling away. Like the Yankees are eight and one Minnesota, your twins are eight and two. They both look legit as expected, but then look, the Orioles are five and three, you know, five and three in a 60 game season is significant. Maybe it's not that significant, but I I do think we might have some crazy teams emerge in, in this season, especially with, you know, all the, in addition to the COVID problem in these, there's a lot of been a lot of injuries also, which is really interesting too. But in terms of the product on the field, you know, it, I, the, in this case, the fans, it does not bother me at all. I mean, I, I, I would actually say it, it bothered me more in golf. I think that a couple times, you know, I've watched golf, you know, in the 18th hole and of, of Sunday, it, it is a little weird to not have a gallery there reacting, but here it certainly does not seem to change anything in my view. Let's move to hockey because, Neil, I know you've been waiting to talk about the Colorado Avalanche's last second, really last nanosecond (laughs) goal against the St. Louis Blues. So how was the weekend in hockey, Neil? (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was great. Uh, Hockey just kind of got out to uh, a fast start with what felt like games all day long on Saturday, Sunday. Yesterday, I watched hockey all day long in addition to about three or four other sports. Um, and yeah, the, the goal that you're talking about, uh, and it, it wasn't a play or it wasn't a qualifying game. It was a round Robin game between the avalanche and the blues who are two of the best teams in the West, maybe the two best teams in the West. Uh, and, uh, Nazim Kadri scored the game winning goal for the abs with one tenth of a second on the clock. And they had to decide from the replay, when the puck actually crossed the goal line, which is the determining factor of, you know, it has to be completely across the line before the um, time expires. And so that's something that you don't really see that often. And it wouldn't be NHL playoffs without weird, um, you know, circumstances that are controversial and bizarre. But I mean, we got a great game uh, yesterday uh, between the Lightning and the Capitals. That one went into a shootout and the Lightning won after blowing an early two-goal lead. Uh, you know, the Penguins came back and tied their series with the Canadians. Uh, it's just been some great hockey all around, and it's great to see those guys. And really, the, the fake crowd noise in hockey feels more authentic to me. There was even a fight in that Capitals lightning game. Oh, what was like, that about? Sir, there are fights of passion in hockey. <laughs> Sometimes these guys it's do actually want to fight. No, there's <laughs> definitely scripted goon-on-goon you know, that famous video of George's LaRock going right before the fight started going, you want to go? And the guy's like, okay. And he goes, okay, good luck. And then the <laughs> second they drop the puck, they th- they throw down their gloves and start fighting. Uh, but no, they're, sometimes they are very angry at each other and will just want to fight because, you know, that's what they do in that game. Sure. <laughs> the Rangers about to get eliminated. This yeah. could be a pretty sorry... Uh, you know, expanded playoffs for them. Yeah, they've so. really laid, they've come out, they've laid an egg, uh, which I think, you know, a Devils fan such as yourself is is relishing. This is <laughs> I all think. I have. This is all I have. <laughs> That's just sad. I, I feel bad for you. <laughs> um, okay, well, so we we have a lot of games ahead of us still, which is a wonderful feeling. But if you guys could only pick one, what game in any sport are you most excited to watch this week? Honestly, I've been listening to the Mets on the radio, and I have been enjoying that quite a bit. Um, so, you know, it seems like they basically only play the Braves, which is a weird part of the schedule. But hopefully that changes soon. <laughs> but it probably won't change much. I mean, it's just going to be east on east just forever. And that's kind of bizarre. Especially when the Marlins are, have only played three games in are yeah. All but right, the Marlins have barely played. I guess they're going to start again today. Uh, I, th- I think that's right. Um, and then they're going to play a bajillion seven-inning doubleheaders to try to make it all up. Um, but uh, we were talking the other day about how like, the playoffs, especially the World Series, are going to be 
a novelty like they used to be before interleague po- possibly unless it's like two teams from the same division uh, alignment which would be kind of disappointing but like the potential is there for us to see matchups in the playoffs that we have not seen all season long and it would harken back to the days when teams didn't play each other from different leagues and the world series was like uh oh we know nothing about the the potential matchup between these teams yeah i i think that's right i mean i like it's it's hard for me to get too excited about the twins playing the pirates this week like that's just you know (laughs) weird and it's weird it is legitimately weird weird. to see those teams play each other but i don't know why i mean it's not it would be no weirder than any interleague game but for some reason i think it's just the the overload of like cardinals twins pirates twins yeah just like what what is going on are we in the wrong central what is happening right teams i really don't pay that much attention to and suddenly they're all i see um, not that, I mean, I'm still excited for any baseball games because I'm going to hold on to this as long as possible until they, you know, scrap the season. Um, but it is weird and, but it will make the playoffs so much more interesting since, you know, when the twins inevitably face the Yankees in the playoffs, they won't have already lost to them during the season. They'll just have the terrible loss <laughs> sweep from last year's playoffs as the last uh, thing before they get swept by the Yankees again. So, um, so that's something to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. Well, with the expanded playoffs, I mean, the odds of facing the Yankees are much lower. I mean, yeah, all roads probably do lead through the Yankees sure. in the AL. Let's, let's not kid ourselves based <laughs> on how they played, but maybe you stave it off for like two rounds instead of, just get thrown into it immediately like last year. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So we'll see how that goes. I am also, I wanted to, uh, the other game I'm excited for this week is the WNBA game between the Mystics and Aces um, Wednesday night. I think that'll be the Mystics are three and one. The Aces are two and two. The Aces have sometimes looked like so strong and then sometimes looked a little, a little shaky. So that will be a fun one to watch as well. Sports, they're happening now. Almost all the time. Basically, any moment of a day, there is a game happening. It's a lot. And 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 we love it. I think we love it. We love it, right? We yeah. love it. We love it. All right. We've been missing end... this for months. <laughs> we can end <laughs> this here. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories. Some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, take it away. Yeah, so we spent most of the show, or at least the second half of the show, as sort of a celebration of sports coming back. And, you know, I think it's a good feeling to to see the games happen. But uh, obviously, we do have to keep in the back of our mind the ever-present existence of the coronavirus and, you know, not just the threat that it poses towards sports that maybe didn't go into a bubble and are now facing several crises, uh, not thinking of any sport in particular, but you can kind of do the math on that. But also the athletes that never played this season, that opted out at various points, you know, either leading into the season or, or as the season's already started because of concerns over health and concerns over what they might bring home to loved ones, but also for their own safety and, and putting themselves out there. And there there have been a lot of players that have opted out. In fact, our friends at ESPN Stats and Info Group put together a list of players across every sport. I kind of filtered it down to Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, and the WNBA for just everyone who opted out as a player, not including coaches. And that list, as of yesterday, when I looked at it um, late last uh, night, so there may have been some added to the list since then, was 110 players long. And, you know, most of them are kind of obscure players. They're players that, you know, are kind of the rank and file. Some of them are rookies. They were going into their first season in the sport uh, and decided not to give it a try because of COVID concerns. Um, But some are legitimately good or even great players that have opted out of the season. So I wanted to kind of put together a compilation of players that were 
sort of the best in their given sport based on their recent production, essentially, in each sport. So for the we used our, our metrics that we like in each sport. So for baseball, we used wins above replacement war. Uh, in the NFL, we used approximate value or AV. In the NBA, we used our Raptor wins above replacement. In the WNBA, we used wins generated, which is just based on a combination of win shares and player efficiency rating. And then in the NHL, we used goals above replacement. So uh, using all of those, I put together a list of basically looked at the percentile rank of each player in their most recent completed season uh, and also the last three years in their sport to try to get like a definitive ranking of the players that we are missing. So first and foremost, if you just look at their most recent season, we're missing 20 players who were in the top 20% of their sport in the last year, which is kind of a, you know, you think about that's that's a huge amount of talent. And if you look at the last three years, it expands even more. We're missing 33 players who had ranked among the top 20% of players in their sport in the last three years. And these players are, you know, at the top of the list. Elena Deladon of the Mystics, we talked about her. She was the best player in the WNBA last season. I think technically she hasn't officially opted out, but it was because the league refused to um, basically clear her for that and, and pay her because of they didn't see her chronic Lyme disease as being a, um, a pre-existing condition that made her at risk. The team and, of course, her doctor saw it differently, and so she's de facto opting out of the season. Best player in the sport opted out. Uh, Dante Hightower, the Patriots, opted out. He, according to Approximate Value, was the seventh best player in all of football last season. And a similar story goes for John Kel Jones of really? the Connecticut Sun. She sat out the WNBA season, second best player. So the WNBA had its best and second best player uh, of last season, both opt out due to COVID-related concerns. Uh, as you go down the list, you also have Bradley Beal of the Wizards. He was the best NBA player to opt out, 38th ranked player according to Raptor War in um, the most recent regular season, which was actually this season. I used stats from uh, for the NBA from from this regular season up to and including the, the couple bubble games so far. Nate Solder of the Giants, Davis Bertans of the Wizards sat out, Spencer Dinwiddie. You have some basketball players that are maybe we don't think of as being the absolute cream of the crop, but certainly in the same conversation. Um, the best baseball player to opt out so far has been Lorenzo. Lorenzo Cain of the Brewers. He was not in the top 10% of players last season, but if you expand it out to the previous three seasons, he was the 34th best player in baseball over the past three seasons in the 98th percentile, and uh, he's gone. So when we're talking about players that, you know, it's it's mostly still players that are, you know, they're in the 50th percentile or lower, you know, they're at the lower rungs of the sport um, and maybe more rank and file players, not stars. But I mean, anytime you're talking about a, a good number of players, like I said, 33 players who ranked among the top 20 percent of players in their sport, just sort of taken out of the ecosystem for the sport. And, and if you expand that even a little bit more, you get 56 players who are in the top 60% of players uh, in their sport opting out. That's one of the reasons maybe why people have looked at this season or this collection of seasons across all these sports and said, oh, maybe, you know, maybe that's the case for an asterisk is that the talent base is diluted a little bit by the absence of these these star players or near star players from their sport. And certainly it does diminish the product on the field as much as we've been enjoying, you know, seeing the sports come back. It's important to remember that in each sport, there has been um, players who are sort of elite uh, that, that have decided not to play out of concern for their own health. And that could be a growing list. You know, we've had, like you mentioned, Cespedes, Jeff, he added himself to that list. And obviously he has not been contributing to the Mets, not not just in the last year, but in the last three years, certainly not. Uh, but at one point in time, he was, he certainly was being paid like an elite <laughs> player until they restructured his contract because he was out hunting wild boar or whatever that was. Um, <laughs> um, but anyway, so I think that that just sort of underscored the, the, the fact that these, these players want to play. You know, I think that we're seeing this in baseball also where, you know, no matter who was responsible for the Marlins taking the field, and it sounded like that story that the Marlins themselves decided was kind of bogus, and maybe MLB used that as cover, and the teams and and certainly MLB itself knew about the problem in addition to the players and could have shut it down, but decided not to. At the same time, you know, the players, if you ask them 
whether they want to play, usually almost without exception, uh, we've seen in the past, they'll play injured. They'll play through all kinds of things because they want to to play. They love to play the sport and also their, their future, you know, financial independence kind of depends on it also. So I think it's a big deal when you have so many players who are so good, basically say like, no, I can't do this. What percentage of the NFL opt-downs are Patriots? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's I think, yeah. a great question. <laughs> uh, well, so obviously the best player last year, at least, uh, Dante Hightower, but you also have Marcus Cannon. He was the 235th best player in the NFL, which doesn't sound you know all that impressive, but that's better than uh, all but 17% of players in the NFL. There's a lot of players in the NFL. Patrick Chung on that list, Marquise Lee on that list, Brandon Bolden. So I think they probably are leading the NFL. I don't have the number quite in front of me, but to to the point where I I saw some people immediately go, wait a second, is this some sort of Belichick cap move (laughs) that we haven't figured out and he's figured out? How do we fix this? <laughs> yeah, I know. I love Belichick that panic. playing 4D chess. Yeah, is <laughs> always way ahead. Always the suspicion. He already had it dusted off his pandemic capology playbook. <laughs> he had prepared it in advance. Yeah, they have eight players on this list, Jeff, which I think is more than double any other team uh, in mm, terms of opt outs. Fishy. But it's been interesting to try to like to figure out how to think of those players, the players who are gone, like. Every year we have players that we lose to injury. That is that always happens. So in my mind, I've just been thinking of them like that. But really, I need to like make space for a whole different category of, of player. Um, and it it will it does change the the nature of these seasons. Not that it makes them not worth playing, but it will change how we think about them long term. I think um, if we ever are not living in a pandemic, which you know. And the other thing with this is that it's not final. We've seen this in baseball already. Nick Markakis initially opted out and then came back just a few days ago. You know what? Cespedes is on his way back. I feel it. He'll be back with the Mets in no time. <laughs> no way. No, no that's, way. That's not going to happen. He might be back with some team. <laughs> yeah, I don't think the Mets want him back at this point. Okay. Well, I think we can leave that there, but it is, it's, I think, uh, smart for us to think about exactly what we're, we're missing this year, what we've lost out on because of this pandemic in yet another way. That will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We love hearing from you and it helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.